If there's one thing that all people throughout time have in common, it's food. But what did food look like long, long ago? What was the food of ancient civilizations, and how similar is it to the food that we still eat today? And what kind of nutrition did ancient people get from the food that they made? The ancient Roman expression from the eggs to the apples, ab obusque ad mala, is referencing the courses served in a dinner party, because it means from the beginning to the end. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. We're going to be exploring the cuisine of different ancient cultures from the beginning to the end. I'm Andrew Coletti, educator and food historian, and I will be your guide as we experience some ancient cuisines and make them in a modern kitchen. In our first video, we're going to be talking about Mesopotamia, a very good place to start, being that the Mesopotamians were some of the first people in world history who invented writing. And that also means they were some of the first people who wrote cookbooks. The earliest written recipes that are known to us today come from Mesopotamia. And when we say Mesopotamia, it's important to note that we're not just talking about one particular group of people. There were many different groups who lived in Mesopotamia throughout its long history. And the region of Mesopotamia, by the way, is in modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, the two rivers that provided nutrients and crops and all sorts of things for people to survive in this inhospitable region. So the tablets that I'm referencing, where we have our recipes, that the recipe we're making today is drawn from, are called the Babylonian cooking tablets. And the Babylonian cooking tablets uh, were composed around 1600 BC, and they were produced during a time when the Babylonian people ruled over all of Mesopotamia. These were the people from Mesopotamia south. The Babylonians especially had a strong rivalry with the Assyrians, who were their neighbors to the north, and who they actually had a lot in common with. But in this recipe that we're going to be making today, there's actually two different variations. There is a Babylonian version and an Assyrian version that are quite different from each other. A lot of the ingredients that are used by the Mesopotamians are still things that we would be familiar with today, but a lot of them are also a bit less common. And we'll be learning about all those different ingredients in just a moment. Hi, I'm Fiorella DiCarlo, and I'm a registered dietitian and a foodie, and I am fascinated by ancient food culture. Today, we're going to be talking about the ancient Mesopotamians. So what did they eat? Well, they had two staple items, a bread that was made from barley and a fermented beer beverage that was drunk throughout the day, and it was very nutritious. They were also pioneers of the agricultural revolution by cultivating lentils and chickpeas that provided a lot of protein as well as vegetables like onions, leeks, and cucumbers, and fruits like pomegranate, figs, and plums. They also dealt with healing in a very interesting way, first in the physical realm, and then second in the supernatural realm. They had one doctor that dealt with herbs and spices and foods to cure the patient, and the second, called the asipu, who dealt with 
determining which god caused the illness and so he dealt with spells and amulets so today we're going to pull together a great ancient mesopotamian recipe and andrew's going to come in and cook it for us while i go into the other room and set the table so we'll see you soon so these are the ingredients that we will be using for both the Assyrian and Babylonian variations of this recipe. There's a couple of ingredients that they have in common, uh, namely being garlic as one, and leek or onion being the other one. The Babylonian version is different mainly because it uses some sort of a root vegetable. Uh, we're going to be using turnip and both of them will be using meat, beef in this case. And then the Assyrian version is different because it contains another different root vegetable. This is lily bulb, edible lily bulb, which you can find at Asian markets. The Assyrian recipe also uses blood, in which in this case is beef blood, as well as an additional type of meat. Uh, these are intestine, intestine from a, a pig in this case. And the cooking fat that we're going to be using for both of them is animal fat or rendered pork fat. So the Babylonian version of this dish is a little bit simpler and less complicated than the Assyrian version, as we will see. There's a few more ingredients that are added to the Assyrian, so I think I'm going to start with the Babylonian version. It makes, makes it a little easier. But the very first thing we need to do, as you would do for a modern stew, I think it makes sense to start by boiling some water and blanching the meat, and especially the intestine, to make sure that it's ready to cook. So first thing I'm going to do... Aha. One of the ingredients that I'm most excited about using, which is in the Assyrian version of this recipe, is the lily bulbs that I mentioned before. Um, so lily bulbs are something that's mentioned explicitly in the Babylonian cooking tablets, but not in this particular recipe. My justification for including it here is that this recipe has some gaps in it, which means that perhaps there are ingredients that we don't actually know the identity of. And also, um, in other Mesopotamian literature, this is an ingredient that's particularly associated with Assyria, with the north of Mesopotamia. So it seems like this was an ingredient that would have been used in the north. And since this recipe is all about kind of a contrast between the northern and southern styles of cooking, I thought it would make sense. The southern version of this, the Babylonian version, also uses a root vegetable. So it's even more of a contrast, having one in the north and one in the South. Um, these lily bulbs are, I got them from an Asian grocery store, and they are still eaten in China today. Um, and they're used in both sweet and savory dishes, and often in stews and soups like the one that we're making. So I'm about to add the meat and the intestine to the boiling water just to blanch it briefly before we start cooking. Um, if you've never worked with intestine before, uh, it's good to know that it requires a fair amount of processing and cleaning, uh, particularly this, which is pig large intestine. Um, the butcher shop where I bought it, it was already pretty thoroughly cleaned, um, but the best way that it should be cleaned is to just keep soaking it in cold water a couple of times and change the water. Um, so I'm just going to go and add both of these. Now the meat, the beef that I'm using is going to be in both recipes, but uh, the intestine is only in one of them. It's only in the Assyrian uh, rendition. So I'm going to do the meat first so that we can keep them separate. The type of meat in the original recipe is, of course, not specified. Uh, it could have been beef, it could have been a lot of other meats as well, because the Mesopotamians had just about all the familiar livestock animals that we would recognize today. They had sheep, they had goats, they had cattle, and they did also have pigs. So it's really just a, just a guess. So I'm going to use a slotted spoon to remove the meat. 
and just put it here. And then we're gonna cook it more in just a moment with the other ingredients. All right, so now that I've finished with the beef, now I'm gonna go ahead and do the same thing to the intestine. This has already been cut into little circles, by the way, which is about the size that I want it to be. You're gonna see, as soon as I've removed the intestines from the water, that the boiling water has completely changed them. They were sort of mushy and like a big blob before, and now they've all um, kind of turned into little circles. Like there. Pig intestine also has a pretty strong flavor and smell, so just something to be aware of. So as I said, I'm gonna start with the Babylonian version of this recipe, the Southern Mesopotamian version. And the main thing that both of these recipes have in common is the ingredients of um, garlic and onion. Mesopotamians in general were really big on allium, as it seems. Allium being all the vegetables in the garlic and onion family. So as I said, the first instructions really is to um, get simply animal fat and garlic. I am using rendered pork fat, because that was what I happened to have around. But any other type of oil or fat would probably work just as well. So I'm just gonna put some in the bottom of this pot, and once it turns to liquid, I'm gonna add the garlic. Now the Assyrian version of this recipe actually says to add double garlic. Uh, you fry garlic first and then you're supposed to add it later, which I think means that it's supposed to be served with some raw garlic on the top. So I'm gonna save a little bit of this garlic for later. So the Babylonian version of this recipe, we're actually gonna fry some of this leek or spring onion as well as some of this garlic. Um, this, by the way, is not a regular uh, European type of leek. It's really a type of green onion, which is why I'm kind of using both terms for it. It's a very large and pretty smelly species of onion. We're not really sure what type of onion would have been used in Mesopotamia, but you can use this one. So I'm gonna add that and also add about half of the garlic. Just gonna continue stirring it. Mm. I keep mentioning how Mesopotamians were pretty vague about a lot of their recipes and a lot of their ingredients. Um, one ingredient in particular that's very important that doesn't get mentioned in any of these recipes is salt. And so some early scholars thought that that meant that the Mesopotamians just didn't cook with salt. And we know from the historical record that that isn't true because they were trading salt, they were obtaining it from the ocean and from different sources. So actually, I think the reason that it doesn't say anything about salt is simply because salt was so common and so widely used that they just didn't mention it. Uh, so I'm gonna take about half of the beef that we have here and just add it in. And I'm also going to add another ingredient which is unique to the Babylonian version of this recipe. So this is our root vegetable. I'm using turnip. Um, the Babylonians called it suhutinu, but we're not really sure exactly what root vegetable is meant by that. Pretty much all we know about it is that it's something that was pulled out of the ground. It's some kind of a root and there's been different theories by different scholars. So basically I want the meat to get browned a little bit on all sides. 
And I'm also gonna add the turnip because that can take a little while to cook and we wanna make sure that is nicely uh, soft by the time we start to eat it. The recipe also specifies that this root vegetable that we're supposed to add, it's supposed to be raw, which makes me wonder if maybe this is something that was commonly eaten cooked or raw. Not really sure about that. So I'm starting to see a little bit of brown on the meat now. I'm gonna let it go another couple minutes and then I'm going to add some water to make sure that the turnips get really tender and well cooked. It's also definitely possible that there could have been plenty of different spices that were added to this recipe that were also just not mentioned, that we're not really certain of. The Mesopotamians did use a lot of spices that we would today associate with Middle Eastern cooking, like things like cumin and coriander and um, various other ones. There's also a few recipes in the Babylonian cooking tablets, though not this one, um, that explicitly mention juniper as being a spice that's used. Juniper berries cooked with lamb or with some other type of meat. So I'm going to go ahead and add some water because I think everything needs a little bit of moisture. <clears throat> I'm also going to add some salt. At this point, I'm going to turn the heat down pretty low and I'm going to leave it to cook. So I'm going to add a little bit more water and then I'm just going to cover this and on low heat just let it simmer for a little bit because we want to make sure the meat and also the turnip gets cooked all the way through. Okay, so I just have tested my uh, turnips with a fork and they are ready to eat. They're tender enough. So I'm going to go ahead and take this off the heat and then we can start on the other version, the Assyrian version of the stew. So the Assyrian version of this recipe does start in the same way as the other one, which means that once again, we're going to get some rendered pork fat and we're going to fry garlic in it. I'm going to use a little more garlic than before. Um, last time I used, I think, about two cloves of garlic. I chopped an entire head of garlic to use across both of them, but this time is probably four cloves of garlic. Um, the reason I'm using more this time is because we are cooking with the intestine and the blood, which have really strong flavors, so I feel like it'll just go better with the garlic. However, as I mentioned, I, this recipe instructs you to actually serve it with garlic at the end, with some like fresh garlic on top. So I'm gonna save like about one or two cloves of garlic for the very end. I'm also gonna add a little bit of the green onion and I am gonna save some of that for the end as well according to the instructions in the recipe. So same as before, just frying our garlic and onion. Can't really go wrong with animal fat and garlic. It's a smell that I guess even ancient times people appreciated. And then I'm gonna go ahead and add the intestine, the previously blanched intestine and the meat. Mm -hmm. So once again, I'm gonna cook this for just a couple of minutes until it starts to get a little brown on the outside. And then we're gonna add some water now, the, I mentioned that the lily bulbs, which I thought uh, would be a good addition to this recipe, I mentioned that they're not explicitly mentioned in the existing recipe, but there are gaps and where I think that they might fit. The gap where I think it says to add the lily bulbs is towards the end of the recipe. And that makes sense because lily bulbs don't take a whole lot of time at all to cook. So 
I'm not gonna add them yet. Uh, the smell of intestine. <laughs> so I'm now gonna add water and then cover it and lower the heat just as with the previous recipe. And then we're gonna let it sit for a little while before adding the final ingredients. Okay. So we're gonna keep the heat pretty low and just wait a couple of minutes for the uh, meat and the intestine to get really nice and tender. While we're doing that, and before I add the final ingredients, I'm also going to talk about one other ingredient that I'm excited about using here, which is blood. So this happens to be beef blood. Um, you also could certainly use pig's blood if you preferred, uh, or some other type of animal blood. The Assyrian recipe is, this is probably the main thing that sets it apart from the Babylonian recipe, and I'm interested to see how it will all turn out in the end. Um, the way that I'm incorporating the blood into this recipe is inspired by some modern recipes using blood, some modern stews. In particular, in the Philippines, they make a pork blood stew that has pieces of meat and sometimes organ in it called vinuguan. So this is actually very similar to the basic idea of that, that it's first you cook the garlic and you cook the meat, and then you might add some water, but then at the end is when you add the blood. Blood cooks very quickly, and it also has to be stirred continually while you're cooking it because it will coagulate, it will get all clumpy. Um, sometimes in modern recipes that use blood, they might call it a chocolate stew or reference chocolate because it turns very dark when you're finished cooking with it. So this is gonna look totally different from the other recipe. All right, so I've allowed the intestine and the meat to cook for a little while and now I've lifted the lid and I'm gonna let it evaporate a little bit of the moisture. And we are almost ready to add a couple more things. I'm gonna add a little bit of salt because we haven't added that, although the blood is also going to be salty, so uh, I won't add too much of it just yet. And now I'm gonna go ahead and add the lily bulbs, which have already been cleaned and separated into individual pieces. They have a lot of dirt on them, so you have to clean them carefully. So this is gonna cook for just another couple minutes. Make sure the lily bulbs get nice and tender, although they cook very quickly, as I said, so that's why I think it would make sense to add them here towards the end of this recipe. When the lily bulbs start to get close to being done, they start to turn clear a little bit, translucent. They look a lot like onions as they're being cooked. Um, but they have a very sweet, interesting flavor that I think will go nicely in this recipe. So now, the moment that I have been waiting for, we're gonna add the blood. As I said, it's important to continually stir it to make sure it doesn't get too coagulated. So here we go. So right away I'm gonna start stirring it. Already, it's already getting thick. It happens pretty quickly. And it's turning a really interesting color. It looks like wine sauce, but it is decidedly not wine sauce. Oh, and now it's already, the color's already starting to change to even darker. Because as I said, a lot of times people call stews and soups that have blood in them chocolate. And you can see it's starting to get this like really dark brown color and that's when you know it's beginning to cook. 
The smell of cooked blood, by the way, is not anything like the smell of fresh blood. It tastes a lot. It, it's, it's, uh, I would say the taste and the smell of it is similar to other kinds of organ meat. It has that kind of liver or um, other organ sort of flavor. This is getting really thick. It's turning dark brown. So I think this is almost ready. The blood will cook very quickly. All right, so I think my blood is cooked. So I'm gonna go ahead and turn off the heat and transfer it to a bowl. Yeah. It's totally different looking from the other one. It's not even, I mean, they're not even really two variations of the same recipe. They're just two completely different recipes. But it's interesting to me that they're considered to be different regional styles that maybe they're both pretty common ways of making meat when you're not grilling it over a fire. All right, so there we have it. We've got our Babylonian and our Assyrian versions of meat cooked in water or meat cooked in a sort of a stew. So now we can go ahead and try them. Andrew, what do you think of my table setting? It's amazing. It looks very Mesopotamian. I see there's a lot of different fruits and vegetables that were found in ancient Mesopotamia that we have laid out on the table. Yes, very nutritious, all of them. And now we have our final dishes here too. Mm -hmm. What I've made is actually two different recipes that represent two different parts of Mesopotamia. So this one is meat with turnips, a beef with turnips, which is from Babylonia and Mesopotamia South. And the other one is beef cooked with blood and a few other things with um, intestine and uh, lily bulbs, another root vegetable. And that one's from Assyria and Mesopotamia's North. These dishes, Andrew, are also very nutritious. If you think about the beef that's used and the beef blood, it's filled with iron and zinc, as well as some of the veggies uh, used, like the leeks and the turnips, have these antimicrobial properties that are great for beating the common cold. And the garlic, too, has a lot of antioxidant power as well. So these are really, really nutritious meals. Do you want to try some now, then? Yeah, let's go ahead. Oh, you take this. I will take this guy. Okay. So both of these are served with pita bread because there would have been a lot of different kinds of flatbread available in ancient Mesopotamia. And what will we be drinking with this dish? Well, Mesopotamians of the upper classes would have wine, but everybody drinks beer. Beer was a really big thing in Mesopotamia, so probably beer. And would quite have been. nutritious as well, I hear. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go for it. Mm. Very savory, very good. And you can taste the, the spice of the garlic and yeah. the shallots. It's really, really good. That one's very garlicky. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try some right off your plate. For sure. This one is, uh, <laughs> it has a little bit of the bitterness from the turnip, but I think mm. it's good. This one doesn't have as much seasoning as mm -hmm. the other one. Mm -hmm. Definitely a little lighter. This mm -hmm. one definitely a bit more savory, but nutritious. Let me try that mm -hmm. one. Yeah, I like the taste of the blood actually. It's very savory. Mm -hmm. It has that like sort of rich um, organ meat type yes. of flavor. Yes, a little minerally, mm -hmm. but in a good way. <laughs> I'm Fiorella. And I'm Andrew. And we are taking you from eggs to apples. Ancient recipes in a modern kitchen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>